Welcome to episode 16 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrouds. I just got back from personally killing the puppies of half the people in Learned League, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Our uh, our guests today are uh, Dargan Ware, Josh Hill, and Andy Werman. Remember that order? It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So can we start now in that order? Just briefly state where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Dargan. All right. I'm Dargan. I'm from Birmingham, and I am a consumer protection attorney and novelist. Yes. Very uh, claimed novel he's put out. Um, <laughs> feel free to promote that at any point. I'm Josh? Uh, hi, I'm Josh Hill. I'm from North Little Rock, Arkansas, and I'm a network engineer for a telecom company helping the internet continue to go as we all work from home during these unprecedented, insert adjective here, times. Very important work. And uh, Andy? I'm Andy Werman. I'm a history professor. I live in Midlands, Michigan. I teach at Central Michigan University. All right. So this game is going to be in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. I call the first round the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. So these questions will mostly serve as a warm-up, not in the sense of being easy, but, you know, just in kind of like uh, getting your mind working and getting used to my question style. And they also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers. So far in the past 16 episodes, only one has actually broken a tie that way, but just in case. Okay. All right. So this round only, you'll be answering as individuals. Uh, You'll rotate. Each of you will be in first position for three questions, second position for three, third position for three. So if the first person, the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second player, then the third if both of them miss. So the further back you are, less of a direct shot you have at the question, but the more time you have to think and the more potential answers could get taken off the table. So when I read the question to the first person, it'll help if you listen, even though it's not yet directed at you, so I don't have to repeat it. Also try and paste the question into the chat window so you can look at it as well. The rules will change after this round, and I will explain them when that happens. And then I'll just give the standard reminder I give to everyone. Content of the podcast is your thought process. So, you know, remember to talk through it, you know, share any interesting thoughts or connections you have. Don't ramble for the sake of rambling, but don't just internalize your thinking and sit there silently. That'll be, you know, more important when you get to the collaborative portion, but it's still fairly important in this round as well. All right. So we will start with Dargan in first position for question number one. Ready? Ready. All right. What knighted Oscar-winning actor has never appeared on Broadway as a performer, but won a Tony after his wife Michelin saw Yasmina Reza's art in its original French and persuaded him to produce English-language stagings in the West End and on Broadway? Okay, so we got knighted actor. I don't think the French still knight people. So he's a French wife, but I think he's a British gentleman. So I'm going to say Sir Patrick Stewart. Good guess. Can you see the question in the chat window? Yeah. I mean, it popped up on my screen on a phone, but yep, sorry. All right. Okay. So that's a very good guess, but not correct in this case. So it will go next to Josh. Let's see. uh, Knighted actors. I'm just going to assume UK. Um, Not my strong suit, but uh, I will take a guess and say Sir Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't even know if he's been knighted. (laughs) I'm not sure about that, but he, unlike Patrick Stewart, he is an Oscar winner, so... uh, He does fit the criteria in that regard, but uh, yeah, also not correct in this case, so I'll pass it to Andy now. I'm afraid we're going to look poorly on the first question. Um, Yeah, uh, I'll kind of follow Dargan's lead with Patrick Stewart's friend, Sir Ian McKellen. All right, yeah, Ian McKellen, not really the um, wife-marrying kind of... uh... Well, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Read the question, yeah? Swing and a miss. (laughs) <laughs> three swings, three misses. Wow. That's, 
I have no issue with his domestic arrangements, but I doubt that they involve a wife. Uh, (laughs) So, yes, in this case, the correct answer would be Sir Sean Connery. Oh, I've heard of him. (laughs) Scottish, but still British. All right, so this next question will start with Oscar. Yeah, he did. He won for playing uh, the Irish-American cop in The Untouchables. Uh All right. So, yes, this next question, when these are finally released, this one will end up being spoiled by the previous episode, but it's too good a question to not ask, so I'll just go ahead and ask it anyway. And, of course, that episode has not been released as of this taping, so no one other than those contestants have heard it. None of these contestants have. All right. It's not a repeat question. It just deals with something that was discussed in the previous episode. But, all right, so starting with Josh, the question is, the Star Trek franchise wiki, Memory Alpha, takes its name from a planetoid. The audience can't see it, but he's uh, holding up the Vulcan salute there. The Star Trek franchise wiki Memory Alpha takes its name from a planetoid in the third season episode, The Lights of Zetar. I apologize if I mispronounced that. What famed children's entertainer co-wrote that episode? Famed children's entertainer. Uh, let's see. I mean, children's entertainers, do we know? Uh, well, I mean, Mr. Rogers is a children's entertainer. I mean, rest in peace. Um <laughs> The guy that played, not Blue, but the mailman in Blue's Clues? No, it's not going to be that. Wouldn't famed. Let's just go with Mr. Rogers. Excellent guess, but not correct in this case. So it goes to Andy next. Yeah, we got to go back a little farther than that, I guess, um, to a children's entertainer. I don't know. I was thinking like Captain Kangaroo or something, but I, I, don't, I don't even know his real name. Let's go with uh, uh, Raffi. Okay, I like that guess. It's an outside-the-box guess, uh, but not correct in this case. Gargan? Uh, well, Captain Kangaroo's real name is Bob Keeshan, but I don't I don't know where I'm getting this, but I'm not going to go with him. I'm going to go with Sherry Lewis. So, yeah, I, in terms of uh, – I didn't specify the gender, but another uh, beloved children's entertainer who kept working right up until she passed away of uterine cancer, her name was Sherry Lewis. And she nice. Her, uh, yeah, with her husband. Wow. Wow. First correct answer, and the next question will start with Andy in first position. All right. In between the tenure of original host Alex Trebek and current MC Mo Rocca, the National Geography Bee, or National Geographic GOB it's called now, was moderated for two years in between those other two hosts, not Cien Años, by whom? Hmm. Seems like something Josh might know, but maybe not me. I watched it with with Trebek. Um, I might have been able to get the Mo Rocca hosted it now. Let's say uh, uh, Anderson Cooper. Very good guess, but not correct. So it goes to Dargan next. The hint there is the Cienanos, I believe. Cienanos de Soledad is uh, 100 Years of Solitude by Marquez. So I'm going to guess Soledad O'Brien. Yeah, that's exactly what the hint was pointing you toward, a literary uh, Nice. I picked up the hint. It's a Garcia Marquez reference, and it took you to Soledad and then to the broadcast journalist Soledad O'Brien. And you'll be in first position for the next question. The title of the 1991 album, Chloe Liked Olivia, by Two Nice Girls, that's the name of the group, is a reference to what seminal work of feminism? Okay. Um... Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of that. If These Walls Could Talk. Good guess, but not correct. So Josh is next. I'm going to try seminal work of feminism. Uh, I'm going to try the feminine mystique. Very good guess. So definitely a seminal work of feminism, but not the one we're looking for here. Andy? I was going to guess the same thing. Uh, the Second Sex? Yeah, again, these are all sort of, uh, you know, dealing with the, the wave of feminism. I can never keep straight at the numbers of the waves, but kind of the one that came in. <laughs> 
it's the mid 20th century, but uh, you'll have to go back a few decades to an even earlier work that was uh, the Virginia Woolf thing. It's uh, yeah, it is by Virginia Woolf. It's called A Room of One's Own. Uh, All right. We'll start with Josh in first position on the next question. David Lagerkrantz, the writer tapped to continue the Millennium series after Stieg Larsson's death. That's the one that starts with the girl with the dragon tattoo, etc. First found commercial success as a co-author of which soccer star's autobiography? Oh, what was the name again? David Lagerkrantz. Okay, David Lagerkrantz. So... Who has a famous autobiography that's a soccer star? Um, I think Pele's autobiography was pretty, uh, pretty well read. And of course, there's also Maradona. I think he did one pretty famously. Of course, Lagerkrantz sounded like a German name. It could be someone like a uh, Johan Cruyff. It's actually Dutch. But I'm gonna go with the most obvious out of those and try Pele. All right. Yeah, definitely a huge soccer star that uh, a lot of people have heard of, but not the correct answer here. So, Andy? Back to me, huh? Well, I was listening to Josh. Um, I'll go with his his reason. I'll, I'll go with Maradona. All right. Uh, another huge star, but not correct here. So, Dargan? I think this guy's more recent, and Larson, at least, was Swedish, and I think Lagerkrans is, too. So, I'm going to go with a less famous soccer star, but go based on nationality and say Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Yeah, the key part here was Sweden, right? I mean, and yeah, the, the continuations have happened fairly recently because there was a lot of legal wrangling between Larson's family and, like, his girlfriend. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of Swedish soccer stars who've, uh, you know, That's become the popular, way Yeah, and, and that, is, uh, that is the correct answer. It is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Wow. Yeah, focus on Lagerkrantz and not Larson. <laughs> I would, couldn't name a Swedish soccer star, so well done, Dargan. Yeah, All right. Next one, we'll start with Andy in first position. Melissa O'Neill, who stars as Officer Lucy Chen on ABC's The Rookie, is almost certainly the most successful of the six winners of what reality competition show? Note that this show's most successful alumnus only finished third on it. Hmm. Reality show with six winners, so it hasn't been around too long um so it wouldn't be a survivor or a dancing with the stars or something like that at least i don't think so um but i can't come up with something better how about how about dancing with the stars good guess not correct here so it goes to dargan okay so six winners female name somebody who has a starring or at least an acting role rupaul's drag race maybe is that what you're locking in as an answer? Uh, that's what I'll guess. All right. Interesting outside-the-box thought, but not correct here. So, uh, Josh? Six winners indicate that the show was, I guess, canceled pretty early. I mean, a lot of shows like America's Got Talent and American Idol have been around me more seasons than six. But I don't remember X Factor in the U.S. being around that long, so I'm going to try X Factor. Right. So, yeah, it was a show that was canceled, despite the fact its host was the son of a former head of government in its country. So you did have to think a little outside, not too far outside of our national boundaries to get to Canadian Idol. Tricky. Most successful Canadian Idol alum. Yeah. Most successful Canadian Idol alum. I would I think most people would agree was uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, Carly. Oh, okay, okay. Now, one last cycle of these before getting into the main game, and it'll start with Dargan in first position. 
So long before she twice appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1984-1985, who was at the center of an international Cold War fracas as a child when her mother was caught sneaking into normalization-era Czechoslovakia in order to transport her to Sweden? Normalization, uh, in case you weren't aware, was basically what happened after the uh, Prague Spring was crushed by Operation Danube. So, okay, 84-85, cover of Sports Illustrated. Post-68, Czech... Sneaking into Czechoslovakia to get to Sweden. Wow. Um, I do not know. That's too late for Nadia Komenich, but it could be somebody from another East European country like that. Or it could be somebody from East Germany. Let's go with Katarina Witt. Hmm, interesting thought. Yeah, I guess she was popular uh, in the 80s there, so good guess, but not correct here. So it goes to Josh next. Let's see, caught sneaking into normalization era Czechoslovakia in order to transport her to Sweden. Sweden. Well, 84 and 85, Sports Illustrated athletes, I guess. I think Navratilova was Czech. She was big around that time, if I recall. But then what's her tie to Sweden? I mean, I guess Graf is German. Uh, I'm just going to go with Navratilova. All right, another good guess. Not correct. Andy? I was thinking Navratilova. Um, so 84-85 was on the cover. That's an Olympic year, but 84 would have been, but 85 isn't. So you, to be on the, on the cover, I'm thinking tennis or golf. Um, yeah, uh, Steffi Graf. Right. Yeah. So these these covers they were in separate years. They were in fact almost exactly a year apart because there is in fact one time when the cover of Sports Illustrated is not given to an athlete. Right. Ah. ah. Uh, Swimsuit. Clone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So in terms of the uh, the popular swimsuit models of that era who were of Czechoslovakian extraction, her name was Polina Poriskova. Oh. My first thought was swimsuit, and then I, other than Heidi Klum, I don't know any others, to be honest. <laughs> had a more eventful life while she was still a child than most people have in their entire time on Earth. Next question, we'll start with Josh in first position. So this one's a little bit longer. The portmanteau celebutante appears to have been first employed by Walter Winchell in 1939 to describe a woman named Brenda Fraser, but it was repopularized by a 1985 Newsweek article that used it to describe the so-called club kids of New York City, a scene of constant partiers that included Michael Ehrlich and James St. James, subject the movie Party Monster, as well as what future star of a Bravo original series, a scripted series, not a reality show, that ran from 2014 to 2018. Before that Bravo series, this woman had a supporting role on a hit drama that aired on Fox. Okay, a Bravo series that ran from 14 to 18. Uh, not a big Bravo fan, but life is. Um... There was one Odd Mom Out. I don't know if that started in 14. Uh, there was another one. The first scripted Bravo series was uh, about the Murder Wives Club or something. I don't know any actresses by name from either of those. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to guess Frankel. Bethany Frankel. Yeah, I, I did try to scripted to, to kind of move people away from reality show stars. But yeah, you got, you got to guess something, right? So we'll go to Andy next. Gosh, um, this is not something I'm going to come close to knowing. Um, 1985 Club Kid, so well known in the in the 80s, and then had a, had a later TV series and was on Fox. Um, I'm drawing a blank here. I don't know. <laughs> Want to guess anything? Even just a random last name? Uh, we'll do it with a famous Smith. <laughs> yeah, in other episodes, I've, uh, you know, deliberately inserted questions about people named Smith just to uh, encourage people. <laughs> 
<laughs> bad guess, but this is not one of those, so I'll pass to Dargan. Um, Callista Flockhart. All right, she was on, well, she was on a Fox show, yeah. yeah. Yes. I think it was technically classified as a comedy, although an hour long. But yeah, even though this woman was the main star of that Bravo series, which was called Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, that's yeah, kind of still kind of a niche clue because, you know, it's on a cable channel. The show she was on before that was much more famous. I think at one point the most popular scripted drama series in the world was called House MD. During her club kid day, she was known as Lisa E. You may know her better as Lisa Edelstein. Hmm. Cuddy, right? Yeah. All right. And the last question of this round, we'll start with Andy in first position. Three would have been too few. Five would have been, like, wacky. Is the official corporate explanation for why there are exactly four types of what? Note that all four types of this thing are named for items beginning with B. Tricky. A little bit different question. Okay, so three would have been too few. Five would have been wacky. It's the corporate explanation for why there are four types of something. If I was really going to stick it to them, I'd say something really quickly so that they can't think through it and have more time. All four items beginning with the letter B. Yeah, I'm just trying to think through it, but uh, I don't think I'm going to get there. I'm trying to think of something that has like four items in a in a, in a a logo or uh, something like that. That's kind of where my head is, but uh, I don't think I'm in the right place. I'll go with Volvo. All right, four types of Volvo. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, well, this has been a fairly sweet and heavy round, so I guess I can see why you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking out of the U.S. All right, uh, Dargan? Well, the the quote that you gave sounds like they're talking about the holy hand grenade of Antioch, you know, five and five <laughs> out. But I think I've heard this before. I think it's Chicken McNuggets. So do you remember what the four Bs there are? I remember one of them is like a maybe a boot um, yeah. or a bell. I think boot and bell are both there. Bow tie, and I think maybe ball is the fourth one. Yeah, it's hard to keep them all in memory. But yeah, that is the official explanation for why there are only four types of chicken McNugget. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Dargan. Oh, wow. (laughs) Five would have been like wacky, and that's corporate speak? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Official Twitter account, yeah. (laughs) All right. So I believe it should be fairly simple to tally up the score so far. It's uh, Dargan 0.4, Josh 0.0, Andy 0.0. All right, Josh, you're with me. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be in a tie, tie. (laughs) All right, so that's the end of that three R's round. Well, now I start the main game with what I call the not all that hard round. It's supposed to be the easiest round or have the easiest questions of the game. So in this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to the categories you submitted. It's not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. The questions may relate directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories yet, not until they become obvious. Mm-hmm. So the twist is before you can answer your specialist questions, it'll be directed first to your opponents who will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. And you'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. If I send the question to you without telling you if your opponents got it right or not, just assume that they got it wrong because if they did get it right you're not going to get any points there might be a few bonus questions for basically if you get a question stolen from you just to kind of uh give you another chance to show off knowledge they'll be worth half as many points as a steal but those are kind of uh semi-randomly distributed so they won't show up every time you get stolen from necessarily and the bonuses will relate to the question they won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty so these questions are not all that hard so they'll be worth two points as a steal one point as a specialist and the points for the steal will go to both stealers, even if only one knows the answer. Okay. Everyone ready to continue? Yeah. You're right. right. Since Dargan is in first position, we will start with Josh and Andy trying to steal from Dargan. 
Let's do it. All right. Here's the question. In the 1940s, a farmer in the Texas panhandle filed tax returns indicating that his farm was a legal partnership with his teenage son. The IRS disagreed and fined him and his wife for tax dodge. He and his wife promptly sued the IRS and its commissioner specifically in a case that would be totally forgotten today were it not for the way it appeared on the docket. What was that farmer's surname? What are you thinking, Josh? I don't I don't know this case. Um, for the way it appeared on the docket. Uh... You know, it's got to be a something bunny that would be notable, you know, like an old McDonald or something. Yeah. Or Junkers or something, maybe vulgar, Dick Hand versus Texas, I don't know. Well, it'd be versus the IRS, right? So I've sued the IRS. So what would be a... Um, Taxes v. Texas? Farmer's surname. What do you want to do, Josh, to make our guess? Uh, let's go... Maybe his last name's Cheat, since they're trying to cheat on taxes. All right, we'll do it. Dargan knows that I can see it in his eyes. <laughs> so what are you locking in as a guess? Cheat. Uh, let's go cheat. Cheat. All right. Dargan, is that right? No. Um, when you see the IRS, it shows up in the docket as name the commissioner. So that's Batman, you guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow. The surname was Batman, and the name of the case was Batman v. Commissioner. Oh, my goodness. An episode of Gotham was to happen. <laughs> and the next question will go to Dargan and Andy trying to steal from Josh. So, unusually, more than 75% of the residents of the Indian states of Meghalaya, Mizoram, and Nagaland identify themselves as members of what religion? So, unusual unusually. in India, I assume. So, I, I think that we can we can rule out Hinduism. The big, the big three. It's well, probably not Buddhism. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, and and it doesn't. There may be only three states with a Muslim majority, but I don't think those are the right states. So I think maybe maybe that's like French or Portuguese India, and they're Catholic, or maybe like we just that. Call Christian. Sure. I think Christian would be a better guess. Yeah, I wouldn't think that they would be Jains or some, you know. But sure, I mean they could be. I don't know. But it's I like, like Christians. Yeah. All right, Christian. You're locking in Christian? Yes. All right, and that is the correct answer. Nice. Yeah, there's no bonus attached there, so the next question will go to Josh and Dargan to steal from Andy. In 2013, the BBC reported that English librarian Thomas Pitchford had discovered that several American curricula were studying a poem called Two Sunflowers Move Into the Yellow Room while wrongly attributing it to what British poet? This man did write and illustrate a poem called Ah, Sunflower that was published in 1794. Okay, so there's a poem called Two Sunflowers Moving to the Yellow Room. And Americans thought it was by a particular late 18th century British poet, and it was not. Well, that, I mean, you got anything, Josh? Ah, Sunflower, I mean, 1794, I'm thinking maybe William Blake. It was around that time. A little late for him. I I think, especially with could, a could be worse worse. Yeah, especially with a flower thing. I think that's going to be one of the early romantic Coleridge, Wordsworth, Daffodils. But yeah, let's go with Wordsworth unless you got something better. I don't have anything better. All right, Wordsworth. All right, what do you think, Andy? I'm thinking about it. So it's in a in an American curriculum, wrongly attributing it to a British poet. You know, it, Americans read Wordsworth. I was thinking Coleridge, same kind of era. Is that what you want to lock in? 
Yeah. All right. So uh, I think the key part here that you all didn't pick up on, why I said this man did write and illustrate uh, uh, of the ones from that wait. sort of era. Sorry, Josh. Yeah. Wordsworth and Coleridge were maybe a little later, but the one from that era who illustrated his own work was, of course, William Blake. Yeah. I'm sorry, Josh. Yeah. yeah whatever. He only, he only did the Tiger <laughs> Pool, so I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> you, you can see it in my face. I'm totally not bitter. Not bitter. Yeah, all, all the listeners can see it in your face. <laughs> yeah, it's good. But sorry, Josh. <laughs> yeah, no, that happens. But Two Sunflowers in the Yellow Room, it came from uh, Nancy Willard's book, A Visit to William Blake's Inn, Poems for Innocent and Experienced Travelers. An homage <laughs> to William Blake that uh, won the Newbery Medal and was also nominated for the Caldecott Medal for its illustrations. All right. Now, Josh and Andy to steal from Dargan. A certain woman gained notoriety as a novelty act in the 1960s, with shrill, off-tempo covers of popular songs rendered in a vibrato that one more recent Amazon.com reviewer described as Ima Sumac having electric shock therapy and just great, where great is spelled G-R-A-T-E. And he emphasizes that was not a typo. One of the songs she covered was a 1965 hit for a more conventionally voiced female artist. And that song was itself an answer song, capitalizing on the popularity of a 1965 hit by a male artist. Now, all three artists who I've referenced, the novelty act, the woman who sang the answer song originally, and the man who sang the song it was an answer song to, all share what surname despite not being related. Wow. I want to see the text of that one a little bit. So that was uh, a <laughs> shrill off-tempo. I was thinking like Tiny Tim or something, but obviously not a woman. 1965 hit by a male artist might be a way in. Conventionally voiced. And then a hit for him. Uh, I mean, we could go with Lucky Smith again. I don't know if this yeah, is Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm, I'm going. It's going to be a, a, a name that could be in, in common with people. Um, a more conventionally voiced female artist. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not anywhere else. Let's see if Dargan can take it. We'll go with Smith. All right, locking in Smith. All right, Dargan. I think it might be Smith. Uh, I'm not 100 <laughs> sure. I'm not going to guess that because you know I know I don't get no points if I if I would, but um, it might be the answer song. Sammy Smith's um, "It's Been the Night Together" or whatever that was called might be the answer song. My first thought of the answer song was Kitty Wells's "It Wasn't God That Made Honky Tonk Angels." There's a famous answer to uh, a song that is not by a guy named Wells. I, I can't remember the guy's name but it wasn't wells so it's a common name i think they're right that it's a common name um williams is always a good guess but i think i'm gonna go with jones for george jones but i don't know what the songs are all right so you're you're liking in jones yep all right yeah another good guess in this case the song it's not quite as early an answer song maybe as the kitty wells one but definitely one of the earliest of its kind it was called queen of the house and uh, it was an answer to uh, King of the Road by ah. Roger, Roger Miller. Yeah, both of those songs won Grammys for uh, Roger Miller and Jody Miller, who were not related. The novelty act was billed simply as Mrs. Miller. Okay. I don't think I've ever heard of the novelty act. <laughs> good question, Julia. All right. So now Dargan and Andy to steal from Josh. So speaking of India and religion, as we were a few minutes ago, from the early 60s until 1987, one of the oddest sites on the Las Vegas Strip, and that's saying something, was a Jain temple that stood poolside at the Castaways Hotel, which was torn down in 87 or so to make way for the Mirage, I think. So no one really knows how the temple made its way to Vegas from which U.S. city, where it is known to have been located in 1904. 
Okay. to have been located. There was a Jade Temple, it was apparently portable, and it was in a U.S. city in 1904, and then it moved to Vegas, and apparently stayed there. The only thing I'm thinking 1904 would be, like, the, the earthquake in, in San Francisco. Would that have a reason to move it? Was well, that 06? Oh, yeah, sorry. Wait, wait. Um, how about the St. Louis Olympics and World's Fair? How about St. Louis? It was St. Louis World's Fair in 04, but would they have a Jane Temple? I would think that... In- Anyway. Yeah, but it seems like a World's Fair type thing, doesn't it? That's true, yeah. Well, maybe so, because it, it was known to have been located, which means sounds like it was temporary. So, I like your answer. You're doing better than me. Let's go St. Louis. <laughs> All right, St. Louis. All right, locking in St. Louis. And yeah, I mean, the big clue there was the year 1904, right? In terms of where lots of people from outside the country were coming in 1904, there was the, there was the Summer Olympics. And there was the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, or the World's Fair. So yeah, this temple was part of a pavilion for the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904. Nice thinking, Dargan. <laughs> Thank you. All right. And now, next question. Josh and Dargan to steal from Andy. Former New Hampshire governor and senator William Plumer was the only member of the Electoral College to cast a vote against which presidential candidate, thus preventing this candidate from becoming the second president after George Washington elected unanimously. Uh, they're going to be James Monroe, 100%. Yep. All right. Yeah, I don't even need to see the text of the question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was a big deal to keep George Washington yeah. all unanimous. And so, uh, you know, it's the era of good feelings. It's 1820. 20, yeah, 1820. Guys, have either of y'all played this week's buzzword, the NAQD buzzword? I played it, but I, yeah. I haven't played it yet. I don't remember a Monroe question. Okay, you may be in a different... I'll keep it was 24. Back. I was 24. Right. I get my ears confused, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because math no, was, was 17. Yeah, it was 1820. Yeah. Was it, Monroe Dodson was 23, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Monroe's first election, Josh. No, it was his second one. I think. It was second one. Oh, it was second. He was, it was a second election. It was his re-election, but okay. I thought the Bummer right. Doctrine was his first term. Apparently, my years are messed up. <laughs> yeah, because Madison was 09 to 17, and then Monroe was 17 to 25. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And then yeah. Adams. and then Yeah, he was Jackson. the last president elected in a year with the multiple of 20 to avoid that curse until Reagan. Right. All right. Now, Josh and Andy to steal from Dargan. So, Grand Upright Music Limited v. Warner Brothers Records Incorporated was a 1991 case in which Gilbert O'Sullivan proved that he was not a friend to which rapper by suing him for sampling Alone Again Naturally without permission. After leaving the case, this man's next album was called All Samples Cleared. Mm, rap album. Uh, 91. Grand Upright Music. Losing the case of next album. Gilbert O'Sullivan. Sued or, oh, okay, so Gilbert O'Sullivan's so, song was alone. 91 case, so it was early. Um, I, I don't have much to go on. Yeah, LL was back then. Cool J. Oh, Tupac was still yeah. around back then. Rest in peace, Biggie. But uh, I'm thinking it's going to be someone like LL. All samples cleared. I'm wondering why this is Dargan's category, but... Uh... <laughs> I guess it's a it's a, it's a, it's a it's a legal matter, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, don't know. I like LL Cool J, but I'll defer to you, Josh. Let's go with LL Cool J. Are you locking in LL Cool J? Yep. Yep. All right, ladies may love him, but uh, he's not the correct answer to this question. <laughs> um, okay, I don't know the case at all, but the clue here I think is the not a friend, and so it's gonna be whoever did that song, just a friend. And I've drawn a blank on who did that. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm not going to say it. Um, is that Ms. Marquis? 
Is that what you want to lock in? That's my guess. I'm, I'm wrong. <laughs> yes, he has friends, and that's a fact, like Agnes, Agatha, Germain, and Jack, but not Gilbert O'Sullivan, and his name is Bismarcky. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I nice. think the thing had to be the clue. <laughs> All right, now, Dargan and Andy to steal from Josh. The name of what white supremacist and eugenicist movement of the 19th century lived on through the food company that gave the world checks and cookie crisp? Purina? Is it Purina? Checks and cookie crisp? Uh, oh, so Nestle Purina or, 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 some sort of pure, I mean, or is, is Purina? It's more of a, uh, the name of what white supremacist and eugenicist movement lived on through. So who makes checks and, and I, cookie crisp would be like. Purina is a really good guess because. Yeah, because I was thinking it was pure, if that's a group. It was just sort of. Well, I, I, and I think that's who owned. I mean, Nestle owns Purina now, but I think that's who made that. It's a little too clever. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> Maybe it is. I, I, but what? I mean, okay. So if it's not the General Mills, Kellogg's. All those guys were weird. Yeah, yeah. Kellogg was a weird <laughs> dude. Right? I don't know if he was a eugenicist. Nabisco is Nabisco is the. But it's Nabisco is National Biscuit Company. I, yeah. I don't know. It doesn't sound too uh, ominous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Purina is the only thing that's making any sense to me, but I don't all right, know. we'll do it. Purina. <laughs> all right, all right. Is that what you're locking in, Purina? Yep. Yeah. So, so what I love about this question is that Purina is absolutely the most logical guess to make in the world. There's just no good reason not to guess that, but sometimes the most logical guess is incorrect. <laughs> yep. Wow. Because I, I immediately went to Purina as well, and. Uh... Goodness. Uh, I mean, actually, my first guess was something called Ralston, but then I thought of Purina. Pure. But um, but if it's not Purina, I'm going to go Ralston. Is that what you're locking in? Uh, yes. So, um, yeah, the company was Ralston Purina. The part of it that came from the white supremacist movement, surprisingly not the Purina part, it was <laughs> the Ralston part. It was the Ralston part from uh, Ralstonism. Yeah. Thanks for narrowing it down. I was like, oh, well, it's just Ralston, but then Purina. I didn't realize they were the same company, so I, I wow, backed into that one, I guess. Yeah, their legacy turned out to be the serial and not the racism. <laughs> All right, now uh, Josh and Dargan to steal from Andy. Last question of this round before the questions go up in difficulty. Lord of the Flies ends with Ralph being rescued from certain death by a passing British naval officer. Perhaps parodying this arbitrary deus ex machina, the Simpsons episode Das Bus ends with the narrator pronouncing, so the children learned how to function as a society, and eventually they were rescued by, oh, let's say, boom. Andy's going to know this for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay, so instead of a passing naval, a British naval officer, um, we could have a passing Scottish groundskeeper. We could have a passing Indian... <laughs> Convenience store worker. Um, I mean, who, who do we want to say? It's probably uh, one of the more famous characters. Evil officer. Uh, perhaps parroting. Mm, eventually, they were rescued by Olesse. So, is it going to be a passing something? I mean, that's just my. That's just off the top of my head. It's going to be a character. I think it's going to be one of the fairly core characters. I don't think it's going to be some rare. Some person who only showed up in that episode or something. So it's not like a Lord Nelson or something. Something historical. No, I, I I don't think so. I think it's somebody from The Simpsons. From The Simpsons. Oh, Neil Flanders, Smithers. 
Who who would you think wouldn't save? It can't be Burns. Surely it's not Burns. I don't think it'd be Burns. I like Groundskeeper Willie or somebody. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Sam's little helper. <laughs> the dog. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, hmm. What was the name of the kid, like Bart's friend with the hair and kind of chubby Chief Quimby's son or something? I oh, um, well, there's... There's Wiggum and there's oh, Chief Wiggum son Ralph. Ralph yeah, Ralph. I think Ralph is probably the one getting rescued. Would be my um, guess. Yeah. Well, Sasha Bob. Sure, go with Sasha Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's what we're gonna say, you guys. You went through a lot of very logical guesses. Maybe ended on one that was a little less logical than the others. Certainly, <laughs> 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 lots of options to pick from there. All right, Andy. I really liked their answer of Nelson as Lord Nelson and British naval officer, and because he was a kid, and that would have that would have been clever. But that it's not that. It's 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 just sort of a complete non sequitur. I don't think there's a clue in the question. It's it's. Your audio kind of went out when you said it. You said it again. Uh, Mo. Mo. Yes. Eventually, they were rescued by. Oh, let's say Mo. As uh, James Earl Jones hates at the end of that episode. <laughs> probably the audience at that age wouldn't have gotten it, but anyone who's read Lord of the Flies probably picked up on how they were parroting just the completely arbitrary nature of the deus ex machina at the end there. Yep. All right. So at the end of that round, I think I'll go back and recheck all the scores, but I believe I have 8.4 for Dargan, 3.0 for Josh, 5.0 for Andy. Okay. So, so right. we got um uh, we got one each for steel and we got two for getting our own or one for getting our own. You got two for steel and one for getting your own. As you said, they did take a, okay. an answer off of the table for you there, so uh, yeah. that kind of balances it out by making it worth a point less. Okay. All right. Now for round two, the only somewhat hard round, the point value will go up to four points for a steal, three points for specialist, two points if a bonus happens to show up. And we'll start with Josh and Andy to steal from Dargan. Do it, Josh. The westernmost point on U.S. soil and the easternmost point on U.S. soil. And this is going by travels. None of that stupid thing of like Alaska is the easternmost state because it crosses the 180 degree meridian. Just thinking commonsensically by travel, both the westernmost point and the eastern most point are called Point Udall. And they're named actually after two different people, the westernmost one after Mo Udall, who we discussed in a previous episode, and the easternmost one after his brother, Stuart Udall. Name either of the islands on which these points are located. Okay, uh, so we're stealing from Dargan, so we got to make up some ground. So I don't know where the westernmost point, which is, I guess, right next to the Dateline, would yeah, be. But the easternmost point, yeah, it's in Maine, and it's on Quaddy Head Island, if I recall. Wow. But I don't know if there's, like, an island off of Quaddy Head that... I don't know we need to get more specific. That seems fairly specific. I don't... I think Quaddy Head is the easternmost point on the mainland. And I think there's an island just off of Quaddy Head, like in the little sound next to New Brunswick and the Harrisstook River. And I don't know the name of that island, which stinks. It might be Stewart Island, but I'm thinking Stewart Udall. And of course, there's a New Zealand island, Stewart Island. <sighs> but I don't have anything better than Quaddy Head. Ugh, this, I don't think it's. it's it's going to be wrong, but... <laughs> you went deeper than Let's do it. Quaddy head. All right, you're locking in Quaddy head. All right, I'll uh, keep quiet about that and pass it to Dargan. I think 
that might be right. Um, but I'm going to go. So I'm going to think about the Western one. I don't know if we'll both get points if I pulled the Western one. But um, it's confusing me a little bit what, what it means by travel. Certainly people travel to the Western, or the yeah, the westernmost Hawaiian island, for example. So, so I'll clarify that, right? Because yeah, I mean, because I, I had a question about that too. Because uh, yeah, I, I know the westernmost island. I know the name of that 100, percent but <laughs> I didn't know if the Dateline thing came into right. So that's why I was trying to clarify up front that I wasn't going off of that because I've always thought it was stupid when people try and say that Alaska is the easternmost state, right? Mm-hmm. So even though Alaska goes into the eastern longitude and so it has the highest eastern longitude, by travel it's not the easternmost because that basically means, you know, if you kind of imagine you're in the center, broadly speaking, of the U.S., how mm-hmm. far west could you go and how far east could you go? Okay, yeah. so I think the westernmost one would be in Alaska then. Because if you keep going westward until you can't go any further and still be in the U.S., I'm going to say, which island is that? I'm going to say Diomede Island. All right. That's an interesting guess. So, Yogesh, uh, I got a question. Because the westernmost island is Atu Island. I mean, that's that's oh. just basic. And I know we locked in with Quadi Head, but with that clarification, I mean, Atu Island is the westernmost. I don't know if Quadi has an eastermost right. or not. But. So, I think you all made the same mistake. The question says U.S. soil. It does not say in a U.S. state. Oh. Uh, so, we're yeah. – it's um, – it's, uh, Guam. It's either – well – the westernmost point on U.S. soil is definitely on Guam. On oh, Guam, not Northern Marianas. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And, uh, the easternmost point is on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's way further yeah. east than Maine. Okay. Yep. 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 on U.S. soil. Yep. Great question. Great question. All right. Uh, next one goes to Dargan and Andy trying to steal from Josh. What errant company of Arby's now also owns Buffalo Wild Wings, Rusty Taco, Sonic Drive-In, and Jimmy Jones? Hmm. Well, I can tell you it's, it's not Yum Brands. Yeah, it didn't, that was my thought, but that's Pepsi. Um, uh, talk it, about and stuff. Yeah. It's going to be yeah, one of the big, like... Sorry, I didn't hear that. I was just like, is it just going to be one of these huge companies that owns everything, like Unilever or something? I guess it could be, but I don't think so. Another big restaurant company is Darden's, but they own like Olive Garden and a bunch of like... Oh, right, yeah. But I thought Arby's was owned by something like the American Roast Beef Company or something. I don't know what Arby's meant. And they used to own uh, uh, T-Sky, I think, that was Arby's. I don't know. Okay. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. I like that it's more – I don't think it would be Darden's either, but I don't have much else. Um, I think Josh knows by the way he's looking at us. I don't know. Do you want to go with the American Roast Beef Company, or is that too specific? I think it's too specific. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think it probably is too. Like I know who the founder of Sonic Drive-In is. It's uh, Cliff Hudson. There's a he gave a lot of money to scholarships to University of Arkansas and Oklahoma and stuff. Oh, um, yeah. But he must have sold it to somebody. I don't think it's like Hudson Company or anything. Um, right. Well, could he have sold it to Target to make Dayton Hudson? I don't know. I got nothing better. Okay. All right, we'll say Dayton Hudson, Yogesh. All right, you're locking in Dayton Hudson. Yeah. All right, Josh. I seem to remember reading that Wendy's bought Arby's a while back and that Arby's then bought a bunch of companies. New Buffalo Wild Wings was one. But I thought 
because I remember thinking it was weird that Wendy's owns Arby's. It's like they're like completely different. Buffalo Wild Wings, Sonic, like they're cannibalizing themselves. And but I think it was Wendy's. I I'm trying to. Yeah, you're right. It's not like a Yum Brands or Darden's or uh, anything like that. Um, people that own Outback. I want to say it's Wendy's. I'm going to go Wendy's. Yeah. So, I mean, the, if that had been stolen from you, your bonus question would have delved into the history of Arby's because it was owned by a, a company called Triarch that also owned Wendy's and then became, I think it was just called the Wendy's Arby's Company, which is a very unwieldy name. But <laughs> um, yeah, they, they've now gone their separate ways. They've divested themselves. So Triarch is, or the Wendy's Arby's Company is now just the Wendy's Company. It's completely been divested from the corporate parent of Arby's, uh, which also went to other companies. And that company is called Inspire Brands. Oh. Okay. Okay. And really split. Yeah, so Wendy's and our, they, they were until a few years ago under the same uh, corporate umbrella, but now they're completely split apart. Ah. All right, now Josh and Dargan to steal from Andy. So, I first fell in love with Veronica Mars, the show, not the character, when a key moment in episode five is accompanied by a needle drop of a certain song by Old 97s, whose chorus states, You Will Be Replaced. The title of that song is very similar to the title of what 2019 graphic novel by Jerry Craft that won the 2020 Newbery Medal. A similar but slightly different phrase appears at the beginning of the title of the season 12 Simpsons episode that featured Justin Timberlake and its guest cast. You will be replaced. Uh... Wow. Um, I feel like I could know the old 97 song, but I'm not pulling it. I definitely don't have anything on the graphic novel. Title of the song. Um, title of the graphic novel. Uh, so they we're looking for the graphic novel, not the song. Let's go with all your bass or belong to us. That's not a makes no sense. No. Um, yeah, I got nothing. I think we should say just Justin Timberlake is with In Sync. Was he Backstreet Boys? I get those confused too. Uh, I think he was in sync. So is there something to do with being in sync? Out of sync, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Out of sync? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> All right. I, I follow your logic there. Uh, decent guess considering what you're working with. All right, Andy? I'm a smart man, you Josh. I have a PhD. You know this is this is embarrassing. That I'm, anyway, so but I've I've said that other than than colonial American history, my strong suit and probably the thing I might even know better is The Simpsons, and I'm I'm really having trouble thinking of that title of that episode. Um, but that's my only way in on the question. I didn't even know they had a 2020 Newberry Medal already. Um, so I don't know the graphic novel or the. Well, there are a lot of ways into that question. Um, the the Justin Timberlake episode was the one where the the Bart and Nelson and Ralph formed a, a boy band, the Party Posse, and Justin Timberlake appeared. But I can't remember the name of that that uh, episode. If it's, I don't think it's called the Party Posse. That's the name of the band. But that's what I'm gonna say. A similar, slightly different phrase begins. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense for all the other things. But uh, Party Posse. Yeah, again, you know, a decent guess considering the knowledge you're drawing on. It is a little tricky to talk about Justin Timberlake because, of course, at that point he wouldn't have been famous in his own right. He was guest starring as a member of NSYNC. All of whom were guest starring together. But you saw that, yeah, but you, you didn't remember the title of the episode. The full title of the episode is a play on an even earlier boy band. It's called New Kids on the Black. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but the, the graphic novel, I think, is just called New Kid. Oh, maybe I have heard of it. Okay, good yeah. question. 
and also won the Coretta Scott King Award from the ALA. Oh. Josh and Andy, now to steal from Dargan. Yeah, since I'm behind oh. enough editing that even episode seven, which I'm kind of cannibalizing for this question, also hasn't been released. So yet again, no one here has been exposed to that material. All right. So here's the question. Now, Josh and Andy to steal from Dargan. Audience says who saw the premiere of CBS's The World's Best after Super Bowl 53 were treated to a sonically perfect recreation of George Strait's vocals on Amarillo by Morning by... Hank Erdane, a man from what remote desert country who supposedly can neither speak nor understand English? I remember this guy. Uh, <laughs> world's best. I remember when this came up. Yeah, he sounded perfectly country. And it's a remote desert country, Ink Erdane. It's one of the former... I was thinking, like, I was thinking like Mongolia or something. Um... Remote desert yeah. country. Um, no, it was one of the Soviet countries, one of the stands, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, it could be Mongolia. I remember this guy and got sorry. Where are the, the, the throat singers from? I don't think it's a desert. They're from like Bhutan or something, right? Or Burma, Myanmar. Those are countries. Um, <laughs> they're not desert. Give me some remote desert countries, Josh. Remote desert countries. Namibia is pretty remote, and it's a desert country, but, I mean, it's Africa. Uh, you've got you've got your Chad, you've got what, your... What are we thinking that name's like, though? Ankh Erdan. Would that be Namibia? French? Uh, then the kind of Erdan? Then... Yeah, well, I don't, I don't like Mongolian for that, is what I'm saying. Yeah, was I German. like Namibia. Yeah, well, it's German, but... Yeah. I, I, I thought I remember it being a stand, but... Namibia is more remote than any of the stands, and the stands are more really steppe than desert. Namibia is mostly desert, and you can't think of any other remote desert countries. I mean, you got the five across the Sahara. They're down the Mediterranean. They're not really remote. And then the ones under it, they're not really desert per se. Chad or Mali or something like that. <laughs> Namibia is, or Botswana. I guess that could be a desert country, but Namibia is more remote than Botswana. I like Namibia. Let's do that. Namibia. Yeah, let's go. All right. You're locking in Namibia? All right. Yeah. Pass it over to Dargan. That name is quite interesting. It's throwing me. Um, but I think they were closer to begin with, either with Mongolia or with one of the stands. I'm going to guess Mongolia. All right, yeah, so I guess you you didn't uh, really remember what he looked like, because he physically was definitely not from Africa. Yeah, and you, you've got, you know, again, you've got even the, the throat singing thing, uh, the throat singers are from Tuva, which is basically uh, near Mongolia. But yeah, he was billed as the Mongolian cowboy. Ah, wow. Yeah. yeah Talked awesome. myself out of it. <laughs> Sorry, Andy, how's me? No, no, I, I kind of pushed you, so, yeah. All right, I think that might be the first score of this round. <laughs> All right, uh, Dargan and Andy to steal from Josh. So, again, uh, pay attention to the wording on this one. The Danish terminus of the above-ground portion of the famed Orestund Bridge, the one that connects Sweden and Denmark, mm-hmm. is located on an artificial island called Peberholm. That island sits next to a small natural island whose name is what Holm. I've given you the last syllable. You just have to give whatever comes yeah. before. Okay, so... Danish terminus. All right, so the Orestund Bridge crosses either the Skagerrak or the Kattegat, which are the two straight between Sweden and, and Denmark. So it might have something to do with one of those home in that. Um, the first thing that came to my head was Drottningholm, but that's a neighborhood of Stockholm. There are a bunch of homes up there. Um, so 
what in this question is a, is a clue to this? Because I think something's got to be. You know, I just had the play on words. It's, it's dumb because it, it wouldn't be stop home because it's a terminus and it's but it sounds like Stockholm. But that's that's just silly. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I thought you know, know. Lego home or, or something. Um, end home. End home. Uh, <laughs> it could be, I guess. Or did he say it was one one syllable? He said he gave us the final syllable or something like that. No, yeah, yeah he didn't say how many yeah. syllables. I don't think. Um, I don't think we have um, much of a other guess. Do you I want like, to do? I like end home. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, if you if you live there, I guess it would be the end of your journey and you'd be home. So. <laughs> I see the logic there, but uh, Josh? Oh, so I, I thought I remember seeing this being like on home or on home. It's like A-A-N home. It's like on home. Is that what you're locking in? Yes. All right. So the, I mean, obviously it would, it would help to know a bit of Danish, but I mean, a lot of Nordic languages are, you know, Germanic, so not that linguistically different from English. So sometimes you can kind of figure out just from knowing English, for instance, what peber might mean. And it's even more close to English and to Swedish, but it means pepper. And the yeah. island that's right next to it, Salt. It's, it's called Saltholm. Ah. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> That's a great question, Ryan. I mean, that, that's, that's great. Yeah, the, the Danish word for salt is just salt. All right, Josh and Dargan now to steal from Andy. Based on the true story of a gorilla who lived for 27 years inside a shopping center in Tacoma, Washington, 2012's The One and Only Ivan is an award-winning children's novel by the author better known for giving young readers more fantastical and commercial fare, like what series of 54 books that began with 1996's The Invasion? <laughs> you really ask this question? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Oh no! I, I, I mean, um, don't don't consider this cheating. But where is it? Where is it? I, I totally yeah. I think Josh knows. Yeah, uh, I think trying it, to find. Yep, I don't think go. it's gonna come to me. Yeah, it's not gonna come to you. But I've got one of those books. I've got like five or six of them on the shelf. Oh, book twenty six is the one where Jake turns into the tiger, and that's where I became the whole Josh Tiger Hero slash. Yeah other stuff thing but yeah it's just totally that author in that book series <laughs> yeah i completely withheld the author just in case someone had like a binary association i wanted to make it a little bit harder the author of ka applegate and the yeah. series this is uh, the first time i recall someone answering by holding up the, the answer <laughs> <laughs> i would have gotten it only because josh has talked about it before so uh it would have been through josh that i knew it anyway yeah so uh, it goes to Josh and Dargan, uh, the first steal of this round. Very good. Animorph is the correct answer. All right, now Josh and Andy to steal from Dargan. Those of us who are American but don't reside in Louisiana, which I think is all of us, live under common law, a system whose defining feature is known in Latin as stare decisis. So I'm not asking for a translation of that phrase. Just explain in plain language what it means. <laughs> Andy, you got this? To explain common law? Well, story decisis, what does story decisis mean? I mean, I, I can translate it, basically. I don't know if you had an elaboration. I mean, it's basically like it means let the decision stand. So basically follow precedent in right. 
previous decisions. And of course, now we have a Supreme Court that's throwing out precedents left and right, but basically is using past judicial proceedings as the basis for interpretations of modern day law, especially when it comes to resisting uh, legal proceedings. So um, it's, it literally means let the decision stand. But it's well said, Josh. You said it was for me, and then you just took it. Anyway, yeah, I, I think that's, that's I think that's pretty clear. I'm not sure what they would want more than that. I think I give you almost all the points on a law school exam there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's yeah, basically enough <laughs> information, uh, clear knowledge there. Yeah, basically, yeah. the same kind of cases should be decided the same way each time because once a precedent has been set, it should be followed. Yeah. yeah, the defining feature of common law. Excellent answer. You wanted to make up some ground on Dargan there, so you did. <laughs> All right, um, and another sort of foundational question now for Dargan and Andy to try and steal from Josh. As any accountant can tell you, the sum of liabilities and equity equals total what? Liabilities and equity. So... Sum of your liability and equity equals total. Is that just debt? Like, I mean, some make it sound like you're adding them together. But your equity is going to be positive and your liabilities are going to be negative, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's probably got some fancier term, but I read that as saying debt. Josh is covering his head. Um, I shouldn't take clues from his body language, but I'm trying to. Um, yeah, accountants probably accountants may have a different term, but I, I like debt. All right, we'll go with debt. All right, so in business terms, debt and liabilities are kind of synonymous, so that wouldn't really work in that equation. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. Josh. So in the balance sheet, basically, you always was taught that. Uh, on the left side of the balance sheet is your assets, and on the right side is liabilities and owner's equity. We always call it owner's equity. Sometimes they call it capital. If you're talking about a publicly traded corporation, it would be capital there, plus liabilities equals assets, and they always balance out. So assets is my answer. Yeah. So in terms of like what you own, sort your assets, a... even though your liabilities are debts owed to others, right, what you borrow from others, you put into your business. So it becomes essentially an oh. asset. Right. And any other you put into it is your equity in it. So liabilities and equity together add up to total assets. So Josh is correct. All right. Closing the gap, definitely, between uh, himself and Dargan. All right. Yeah, now that won't be any closer on this last question of the round, because Josh and Dargan were working together. All right. Here's your question to steal from Andy. The Committee of Five were five members of the Second Continental Congress who drafted the document that would become America's Declaration of Independence. So the most famous of those five were John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin, which leaves to name either of them. Just give the points to Andy now. <laughs> What'd you say? So just give the points to Andy now. <laughs> uh, I mean, we we can come up with a guess. Um, yeah. yeah so, so. We know other people who were there. Uh, I think Button Gwinnett was there. Governor Morris might be a good guess. Uh, George Mason. Also, another, yeah, George Mason. No, well, maybe some of these guys were at the Constitutional Convention instead of that one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like Morris. Yeah, Governor Morris from New York, I believe, right? Neither New York or Pennsylvania. I, I don't actually know, but I've heard the name. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be Hancock. Would it be Hancock? I mean, he was he was definitely there. He signed the declaration. Yeah, but well, he was a president of the Continental Congress, 
or something like that. And he was a big signature guy. Yeah. But yeah. um, was he on the committee if I drafted it? Who knows? That's certainly a possibility. I think I like your Morris better. I think Hancock yeah. was the president, so how would he be on the committee and presiding over it? There's also a Robert Morris, so maybe we should just say Morris. And you know, <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I forgot about Robert Morris. <laughs> Oh, you're going to ask us to be more specific. Let's just go. Yeah, more. Yeah, we'll say more. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I probably would have to ask you to be more specific if <laughs> if, if it were right. Yeah. Morris was, right. Yeah. <laughs> Morris was a good guess, though. I was like, that's a, that gives you two people who potentially could have. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we could do both. But uh, the underrated founder from Connecticut, Roger Sherman, was on it. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, Livingston was the other. I forget. Is it William Livingston? It was not. It was actually Robert Livingston. Robert Livingston. See, that's why I went with Sherman. Yes, for one of those um, white people reasons I don't quite understand, his full name was, in fact, Robert Robert Livingston. <laughs> I don't know if that's a white people thing. Is, but sure. Yeah. Boutros, I mean, is... Yeah. A few others. So nice they named oh him. Terran, Terran. Yeah, it looks like I missed a line somewhere in there, so I'll have to go back and straighten out. But uh, anyway, right at the end of this round, right now we have the scores as 15.4 Dargan, 14.0 Josh, 10.0 Andy. I'm also a line off, so there might be some, but it might just be like a 0, 0, 0 I've missed. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. I was, in fact, off in the scoring. At this point, Andy had... 12.0 points. Yeah, so then we'll now go into the next round. The super hard round, the hardest questions are meant to be in this round, although um, sometimes idiosyncratic things happen. All right, so in this round, the question will be worth six points as a steal, five as a specialist, three as a bonus, if that pops up. And we'll start with Josh and Andy to steal from Darkin. Let's do this. All right. You could, in fact, see Russia from your house if your house were on a U.S. island that is only 2.4 miles away from a similar <laughs> named Russian island. You could, also yeah, 20, <laughs> Sorry. you could also see 20 or 21 hours into the future, thanks to the International Dateline. Both of those islands are named for what Greek Christian martyr and saint from Tarsus, who shares his name with a Greek hero depicted in the Iliad as the favorite of Athena. That hero also appears in Shakespeare, wooing Cressida and driving Troilus mad with jealousy. Yeah, this totally came up earlier in this episode. <laughs> it was one of the guesses. Am I? Okay, I'm muted. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, what was guessed for the westernmost earlier, one of the guesses, but it's, it's the Diomede Islands, big and little. Oh, ah, I was uh, thinking what, what we had said earlier that fits the Troilus yeah. and Cressida and that kind of stuff, but but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that, I mean, they're basically variations on the same, right? The saint is often called Diomede of Tarsus, and the Greek hero was called Diomedes. They're variants on the same name, basically. So I would have accepted either one. But yeah, I think this might be the first time that an answer has been given away by a guess in a previous question. <laughs> wow. All right. But yeah, as I said, these things will uh, will happen sometimes. I think that pushes Josh ahead. Yeah, Josh ahead. I think it might even push Andy into second. Yep. All right. So good equalizer there. And now Dargan and Andy to steal from Josh. Back to third. The first Parliament of the World's Religions held in conjunction with Chicago's 1893 World Columbian Exposition was organized primarily by Charles C. Bonney, who ironically was not an adherent of any of what are today called world religions. Rather, he belonged to the New Jerusalem Church, one of many movements inspired by what theologian and mystic who lived primarily in the 18th century. Other followers of this man's preachings included shorthand inventors 
inventor Isaac Pittman, plasticine inventor William Harbutt, the 1896 Democratic nominee for Vice President Arthur Sewell, Helen Keller, and Johnny Appleseed. There you go. This is Sweden. Swedenborg, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you, you got clipped out a little bit when saying it, but yeah, I think Dargan said it that's, as well. <laughs> that's weird. I don't know why I'm clipping out, but yeah, uh, Emmanuel, I think, is the person. Anyway, Swedenborg. Yeah, Swedenborg. Right. And uh, all right, so for the first time, there is a bonus available for Josh for three points if he gets it. Here's a question. What prolific TV director of Swedish descent and raised in the Swedenborgian faith is one of the few people to have fathered two Oscar-nominated performers? Uh, Barrymore. Do either of you guys know it? Bergman? I don't know. Yeah, you'd have to think, right, not so much the father being famous, but the uh, two siblings being famous, having a, a very Swedish last name. So his children, who both have been nominated for Oscars for performing, are named Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, uh, yeah. Swedenborg. His name was Stephen Gyllenhaal. All right, so that I think puts Andy in good lead for now. Surprising. <laughs> so Josh and Dargan to steal from Andy. Maria Semple, the daughter of screenwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr. and author of the novels Where'd You Go, Bernadette? and Today Will Be Different, is in a long-term relationship with what former Simpsons writer who was described in a fascinating 2000 New Yorker profile of him as, quote, the funniest man behind the funniest show on TV? Is this Matt Groening or is there somebody else? Uh, Maria Simple, former Simpsons writer. I mean, being someone that was on the I music, mean, Groening is still on the show, right? He's still, he hasn't I, I left the no show. Idea. I have no idea if he's still on the show. That's the only writer I know. But you yeah. know. I don't know any other writers of The Simpsons, so um, Andy's going to stretch out his lead on this one. <laughs> Just say Groening and. All right, cool Matt Groening. Yeah. Although he's uh, credited as a, a creator, he uh, hasn't had very much involvement with the actual writing of the show. Some people would say that's a, a good thing. But, um, all right. I'll pass it to Andy now. Um, there are a couple of different or a lot of different writers on the show. Most famous is probably Conan O'Brien, but it's not going to be Conan, I don't think. Um, I, I'd say uh, John Schwartzwelder. Yeah, so um, back in the very first released episode of this podcast, which is publicly available, unlike many of the ones that have been recorded but not yet edited, there was another person. I think I can probably let it out of the bag now, but there was a, another person whose uh, category was identical to yours of The Simpsons. And for him, I did write a question on John Schwartzwelder. Uh, and so I did not go back to that well this time. Yeah, this man's name, um, an absolutely fascinating profile. I found it. I've read it a few times. really goes into depth about his history and his very unusual sense of humor his name is george meyer yeah george meyer darn <laughs> zero for everyone on that and now josh and andy to steal from dargan co-written by jerry lieber of lieber and stoller fame and originally recorded by billy ed wheeler what duet peaked in popularity when it had two commercial successful covers in 1967 a pop one by nancy sinatra and lee hazelwood and a country one by Johnny Cash and June Carter. Contrary to what one might assume, the title location of this song appears to be located in Tennessee. 100%. It was featured in the movie Walk the Line. I, I mean, that's the only one I can think of. There's definitely a city in Tennessee of about 80,000 people by that name. Of course, the more famous city by that name is um, an 82% African-American city. <laughs> happens to be a state capital in capital um, actually the most african-american metro area in the country 45.6 percent memphis being a close second at 43 and i think be the baltimore and atlanta are third with 35 percent but uh i thought they were singing about the mississippi song honestly but is there any others is it is it not jackson that, could it be well it's, 
is that so it's it is Jackson just the name of the of the song? Do we know there's that the name of the song is Jackson? Yeah, I'm going to Jackson. I'm gonna mess around. I didn't know, sometimes titles are different. But anyway, um Jackson is the is the town and Okay, so is that what you're locking in? Yes. Alright, Jackson. Is that correct, Dargan? That that's the right song. I, I think it's I'm going to Jackson. Uh but that's at least I'm gonna get that because because I might get points. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, as far as I can tell, uh, Jackson is the title, so that was, yeah. I'll just give you a quick bonus. So before it really broke out in 1967, what trio recorded that song on their 1963 album, Sunnyside? Trio. Uh, probably too early. I'm going to say the Gatlin Brothers. All right, yeah, so the, uh, as I said, the bonuses aren't always the same level of difficulty. In the early rounds, they'll often be much more difficult than the question. In the later rounds, it might be a bit easier, or the hints might be more straightforward. So in saying trio, I was giving you essentially a... Oh, it's Jimmy it's, it's, uh, Lou and, and Dolly and them trio? It's just the Kingston trio. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Dargan and Andy now to steal from Josh. All right. Okay. In chapter nine of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna, I am the supreme goal of all living beings, and I am also their sustainer, master, witness, abode, shelter, and friend. I am the origin, end, and resting place of creation. I am the storehouse and eternal seed. O son of Kunti, even those devotees who faithfully worship other gods also worship me. I am the enjoyer and the only lord of all sacrifices. Those verses may have inspired the Neo-Vedanta school of Hinduism, advanced by Swami Vivekananda, the man who represented Hinduism at the aforementioned 1893 Parliament of the World's Religions. And that school emphasized the underlying common roots of all religious systems, and it in turn inspired the religious universalism advanced in which British thinker's 1945 book, The Perennial Philosophy? Okay, British thinker. Uh, is this um? Is it the guy that that um wrote with um? You thinking like Bertrand uh, Russell? Yeah, but I think it's I think it's his buddy, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, maybe. Okay. Or should I we get Russell because that's too? I don't know. Are we sure it's those guys? What else we got? Yeah, I don't have much else. Um, Josh is covering up the screen or something. I'm not sure what's going on over there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll I'll go with I I don't know what else uh Alfred Whitehead, Whitehead did. <laughs> You like process theology, which sounds like this ultimate, you know, becoming and becoming and becoming, and it, the perennial. What's the name? It, my uh, the actual uh, question went away, but the, the perennial thing sounds like it might be the same kind of idea. Perennial philosophy. Okay, yeah. let's go with Whitehead. All right, Josh. Oh, see, I was thinking Russell, um, British thinker, 1945. Um, yeah. I was like, well, you're, you're off the camera now, which you can't be proctored. If uh... oh, my, my camera's off. What? Wait, what happened? Did I? It's oh, got like a. It's facing my. Oh my goodness. Uh, how did I do that? Okay, what about now? Okay. You're back. Yeah, I must have pushed something. But yeah, sorry about that. I I, I don't I don't know this answer. <laughs> I was thinking either Russell and then maybe Whitehead, but if it's not Russell the Whitehead, then I have no clue. Is it C.S. Lewis, maybe? Yeah, I wasn't sure whether to um, give perennial philosophy and ask for his name or to give the name and ask for perennial philosophy. Those might have been equal difficulty. But yeah, the thinker who kind of um, really believed, yeah. So so people associated with either atheism or one religion like Lewis was being a Christian. Um, yeah, yeah, they weren't sort of the more universalist idea that all religions have the same root, right? That was more someone who uh, whose mind had been opened, perhaps, by a certain uh Things oh. and who came to kind of see a higher ground as being as linking all of the world's religions, and his name was Aldous Huxley. Oh, didn't go that way. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's a good one. 
All right. And now Josh and Dargan to steal from Andy. One of the most successfully tear-jerking moments in the entire run of The Simpsons, for me, comes at the end of the season two episode, Old Money, where Grandpa chooses to spend the money he inherited from his girlfriend, B to refurbish the retirement castle. The part that always gets me is the very last line of the episode, where Abe tells the other residents, Come on in. Blanks on me, friends. Where what word goes in that blank? Blanks on me. Uh... It's not drinks. I don't think it's drinks. Just to... there we go. Hey, it didn't change my camera that time. <laughs> I was trying to get me to text. I don't want to text. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, I'm not coming up with anything that fits there. Um, drinks on me? It's not drinks. Come on in. Come on what, in. what would they have at a retirement home? Geritol? Geritol <laughs> <laughs> on me. Um, come on in. Um, Prune juice? I'm being ageist right now. That's not cool. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, I got nothing. Uh, come on <laughs> in. I don't know. I got nothing either. I, I'm, I'm seriously thinking prune juice may be the... I don't know. All right. Prune juice on me. All right. Yeah. Sorry. That's, among other things, not the single word. Um, but yeah, not, <laughs> it wouldn't really be much of a tearjerker or a, a successful sentimental moment either. Yeah. All right. But um, anyway, I'll just pass it to Andy. I'm struggling on this one, too. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen this episode, and uh, I, I remember it, but man, I don't remember that last line. Because um, he refurbishes the... Retirement home. It was in poor shape. It kind of is dedicated, I think, to to be. There's a there's a a, a room. I'm struggling with it. Um. Uh. It has heat. Maybe is it heats on me? Yeah. So uh, inter- I just yeah I realized that a few episodes ago I had also asked a question about this word and I had also used a clue from The Simpsons, but it was from a scene that's in many ways uh the opposite in that it's maybe the le- the most unsentimental uh, <laughs> scene from uh, early Simpsons over the classic Simpsons era when. Uh, Milhouse's parents, their relationship breaks down during a game of Pictionary, and, uh, and they end up divorcing. And of course, in that one, uh, dignity. Uh, okay. Right, it's a, a dignified a- space. Yeah, cool. That was a great question. So that word shows up in multiple classic Simpsons scenes, fulfilling a very different function. But it is dignity. Yes. All right. Now, Josh and Andy to steal from Dargan. Not all lawyers are litigators. What man who graduated from Harvard Law School and spent eight months practicing corporate law at the multi-billion dollar New York City firm Skadden Arps got his only courtroom experience in 1993 when he defended his friend Jeffrey Ross pro bono on charges of inciting a riot? Only courtroom experience. Short-term I mean, Grisham, I believe, went to law school and then started writing. Also, he's originally from Arkansas. Oh, so a John Grisham? Yeah, he's from, where is he from in Arkansas? Pickett, I think. But uh, that's, that's my best guess as far as someone who has a law background. Corporate law. I like that as an answer. Although, that you want to watch? Okay, I'll let's do it. Grisham. John Grisham. Okay, I wasn't trying to pressure you or anything. You're fine if you want to take more time, but <laughs> you want to lock in John Grisham? Sure. Yeah, John Grisham. All right, Dargan? I, I think John Grisham went to Ole Miss Law, um, but not 100% certain. But that, that's a poss- That's not not the way I was thinking. A, a writer wasn't the way I was thinking. I was I was thinking maybe somebody political who became famous for something like that. Um, but I guess it could be a writer. Scott Turo might have went to Harvard. Um... Well, all right. So he defended a guy pro bono for. Have you, have you figured it out, Josh? Yeah, I think yeah. so. But 
Yeah. And here's something that's kind of come to be out of the blue that Jeffrey Epstein may have gone to law school um, and wouldn't have been a courtroom litigator. It may be a finance type. Um, But I mean, I I don't know this off the top of my head. I know somebody else who went to Harvard Law that I may end up guessing because if it's him and I don't guess it, I'm going to be upset at myself. (laughs) Barack Obama. So I think I'm going to guess Barack Obama. All right. Uh, You're locking in Barack Obama. came up with. So none of you know who Jeffrey Ross is? Not I know, familiar, but, but I, not, not yeah, enough to. Yeah, I, I feel like I should, but it's not. Jeff that Ross, old. as he's often also called known. Oh, this is um, this is an actor, right? Not exactly. He's uh, he's often called the uh, roast master general. He's in charge of the okay. uh, yeah, uh, Comedy Central. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's who that the, those help me get the answer, but yeah. I, in terms of Jeff uh, Ross talking about. Yeah, in terms of a comedian who who was a consistent presence on those roasts and a very hilarious one until he uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago and did in fact graduate from Harvard Law School but discovered that being a comedian was more of his passion. His name was Greg Giraldo. Okay. Wow. All right. All right. So the penultimate question of the game. This might be one of the harder questions I've asked, but it's also just one of the ones that I just have to ask because it's it's basic underlying fact is so wild. All right. So this goes to Dargan and Andy to steal from Josh. And this is a, a solve for X question, as I call it. Basically, it has nothing to do with algebra. I've taken out someone's name and replaced it with X in a quote, or in this case, it's an excerpt from a 2001 New York Times. So here Here's the entire excerpt. X, who died in 1998, renounced his militancy in the mid-70s to join the Republican Party. Spiritually, he underwent similarly radical conversions from being an atheist to becoming a born-again Christian who prayed with the televangelist Billy Graham. He was also a short-lived Mooney, founded the X Crusade for Christ in 1979, and the following year formed his own religion, Christlam. It's basically like Christianity and Islam put together. Along with an auxiliary called the Guardian of the Sperm. Then he converted to Mormonism. Still, it may come as a surprise to many that in 1975, X, then living in exile in Paris, took out an ad in the International Herald Tribune seeking investors and manufacturers for his fledgling menswear collection. Millions in profits and vision, the classified read. It neglected to add that at the heart of the line were his patented X's, pants in which a man's genitals were outlined in a sock-like codpiece. I want to solve the problem of leaf mentality, X told Newsweek. Clothing is an extension of the fig leaf. It put our sex inside our bodies. My pants put sex back where it should be. Are you there, Dargan? Yeah, I'm here. Just thinking it through? <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying to figure out what it could possibly be. So, um, how do I get... Do you have any idea how I bring the information back up? The actual... There's a little... There it is. Yeah. Alright. 2001 uh, article in New York Times. But he died in 98. And had a whole lot of religious conversions. I don't... Are you... Did you have anything come up for you? All right. No, not really. Um, for a second, I thought maybe Orson Scott Card, but is he converted to Mormonism from something? But I don't think that's right. <laughs> um, the Chris Lom thing I've heard before, but I don't know where from. Yeah, this took me in circles. Uh, uh, what do you so think he's most famous up. for? So, okay, so... He was renounced his militancy in the mid-70s to join the Republican Party. So he was probably famous for either being some kind of, you know, radical civil rights type, like 
even like a um, like a Weather Underground like Lefty Paris type would be that'd be my guess as to where he was famous from, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the Black Panthers maybe or with their own line of pants. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that stuff at the end is probably. Not going to get us. Yeah, that's not going to get us there. And did yeah, blanks Putin's pants? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, like Stokely Carmichael ran off to Africa and then Europe. I mean, surely it's not him. I mean, but I don't know. That's my it's best. Not like, yeah, remember what he changed his name. Farrakhan or something. Uh, but it wouldn't that none of that would seem to fit. Um, if I had to, I guess if I have to guess, I'm thinking of Stokely Carmichael, but oh, that's not going to be right. Yeah, sure. All right, we'll say Stokely Carmichael. Yogesh. Fucking Stokely Carmichael. All right, uh, Josh? Um, I'm just trying to go through designers at this point. It's like Hilfiger, I think, was still alive after 98. I don't know when Calvin Klein, if Calvin Klein even was a real person. Um, Maybe it's a moniker someone came up with, but... Uh, it's a brand that's been around for a while, so I'm gonna try Calvin Klein. Yeah, no, Calvin Klein is a real person. His daughter, Marcy Klein, is a producer. Of, well, was a producer on Thirty Rock and some other Tina Fey projects. Um, yeah, no, but um, in this case, yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to pick the logic and just kind of follow it. And in this case, it was I think Dargan who had the the right logic to look at kind of radical figures from the civil rights movement. But the one who zigzagged so much more than Stokely Carmichael all over the map, ending up becoming a conservative Republican by the time he died, his name was Eldridge Cleaver. Oh, oh. Cleaver. Okay. 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 That is a great question. Okay. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Eldridge Cleaver pants. Yeah, I, I will uh, give credit to one of our former contestants, Victoria Gross, for introducing me to that fact. All right, I'll go on to the final question of the game now that that interference is quieted down. And yeah, I think I think that the difficulty may have peaked with the previous one. This this one may not be all that difficult for you guys, but we'll see. All right, so this goes to now to Josh and Dargan to um, steal from Andy. A specimen of which founding father signature sold for $722,500 at auction in 2010. Because he died relatively young in a 1777 duel, only 51 authenticated signatures by him are believed to exist, and that has made his John Hancock a bit of a holy grail among collectors. And no, it's not John Hancock. Yeah. Dragon, I think you know this, right? No, my first thought was John Hancock. Um, uh, oh. Until oh. he said that. Um, died in a 1777 duel. Yeah. So only had a few signatures. Andy knows it. <laughs> this is for the game, pretty much. Okay, I'm totally making this up, but I thought there was some uh, something that went around about uh, finding a, a signature of Button Gwinnett and it being a big deal. Um, I don't know anything about him except the Gwinnett County is named for him. Uh, but that I, I think I there's something tickling the back of my brain that, that it has something to do with him. Yeah, see, Button Gwinnett is famous for a particular signature. I don't remember if he's the rarest or if he's the one in the top left corner. But it it's one of those two. Signature, right? Yeah, his signature is famous in some way. It's famous. I think that's I think that's what we should get. Yeah, that's I don't have anything better. But yeah, Button Gwinnett. Yeah, it's it's peculiar. Besides, of course. Jefferson and then Hancock right in the middle, but sure. yeah, let's go Button Gwinnett. All right, Button Gwinnett. 
right. I think I straightened out whatever was going on with the score, so I wanted to see what was... Okay, so before going into that question, it looked like... Andy was leading Josh by four points. So, yeah, basically, yeah, they're on opposite sides of this one. So between Josh and Andy, whichever one got it right would win the game. So in the best interest of drama, then, to simply just keep quiet and turn the question over to Andy. Uh, I think it's Button Gwinnett. Um, and that's because of the signature part. He, he uh, was the signer of the declaration who, who died very shortly afterward. The, the one that I thought that it might have been or that you might have guessed would be um, John Lawrence, who dies in a duel in, in, in Hamilton. But that was later. So I think they're right. I think they got it. Yeah, uh, so I won't, I won't stretch out the suspense anymore. It is Button Gwinnett, and that put Josh into first place. Wow. Good job. Wow. I, I don't know how that happened. Animorphs. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> yeah, so we have uh, final scores of Dargan 27.4, Andy 30.0, and Josh 32.0. Wow, congrats, Josh. Wow. Good job. Uh, I'm still confused. I, that was okay. fun. You did a good job of, of making us all dizzy, stupid, and then one of us gets to win, and that was great. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say we're all winners. Dark got the most questions correct, but it's yeah. just how the points work. Yeah, I guess the later rounds, but um, that was, was great being here with you guys. Um, it's been a long time since we've hung out in the same space. Hopefully, uh, you know, maybe whenever they open Geek Bowl up or some other yeah, type we did, competition. We we did play on the same side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, again, you, it was pretty evenly matched. That was basically just like a one-question margin between everyone there at the end. Very tightly packed. Sort of traditional ending of the episode, everyone basically gets the chance to say anything they want, as long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. And you can talk about anything you want about the game, about the world at large, about some combination of those things, about anything you want. It's up to you. And we go in, I guess, uh, descending order of score, so the lowest scoring person has the last word. So we'll uh, start with Josh. Uh, I mean, I'll just echo what a um, recent esteemed former president said. Vote. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Andy. This was a lot of fun, but I'm writing a book on smallpox in the American Revolution, and so I'm really thinking epidemics like we all are, and maybe seeing things change, and just to uh, follow advice and listen to podcasts like this, and 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 stay inside unless it's essential to go out. Very uh, good advice, and uh, Dargan. Uh, well, my book is not nearly as informative as Andy's, but Yogesh said he was going to give me an opportunity to plug it, so I'm going to take that opportunity. It's uh, it's called The Legend of Colgan Toomey. It has fairly good reviews so far, so uh, if you hear this, please check it out and let me know what you think of it. It has my like email and um, social media and everything in the back of it, so you can let me know what you think. All right, yeah, and it's called The Legend of Colgan Toomey. This has been episode 17 of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rao. Thanks for listening.